on the line right now is that author, Al Wiseman. Uh, Hollow Land is the name of his book. Let me tell you a little bit about Al. He was the winner of the 2006-2007 James Sterling Memorial Lectures on the City Competition for his proposal, Destruction by Design, Military Strategy as Urban Planning. He is also the director of the Practice-Driven MA and PhD programs in Research Architecture for Goldsmiths College at the University of London. Good morning, Al. Good morning. Am very I- jet-led. Jet, uh, jet-lagged morning from New York. <laughs> I, could, I could completely understand. Uh, it's got to be, seven, in your brain, it's got to be about seven or eight hours earlier than it actually is. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, yes, yeah. Excellent. You know, one of the things that I just want to start off before we even dive into, like, more specific questions about what's happening with the occupation is this idea that it's uh, – the occupation is being used as a military weapon. Is that any more so the case with – uh, the Israeli application of the occupation of uh, the Palestinian lands than any other occupation. I mean, isn't isn't by nature uh, military or a, a colonialist uh, occupation of a land, isn't that always a military weapon? Yeah, I mean, in fact, in the history of colonialism, architecture and the organization of space has always had a very important role. I think that uh, my book is looking at the role of architecture at a particular point of time where, as you know, the occupation is one of the very uh, latest of of those colonial um, uh, sort of processes. Uh, And it happened in a particular point of time, at the end of the 60s and beginnings of the 70s, and against a very different cultural background. So what it does is kind of using very mundane typologies that you would be familiar with, like um, the emergence of suburbia across the um, Europe and America and other other kind of transformation in architecture from uh, a more kind of state-based uh, uh, modernist uh, architecture to a kind of what we would call postmodern architecture. And I'm showing how those uh, transformations in architecture and in culture has been abused within the context of the occupation. For example, um, you know that postmodernism is kind of looking for um, history, for recreation of history in, in the style of buildings. Uh, in the context of occupation, uh, building uh, buildings that looked uh, very local um, were, were used to naturalize the presence of Israelis in areas that were actually occupied. This is the, the the thing that really confuses me about this whole process is that at the same time as it seem it seems chaotic, it seems to be planned. Uh, it, it, it that it's kind of part conspiracy, but kind of uh, part organic almost, if you will, based on the idea that uh, so many of the decisions uh, made towards the occupation came through the courts, came through the High Court of Justice in Israel. So how much of the occupation is the is some sort of master plan? And I, I think how- this, is a, this is an excellent uh, question, and in fact, perhaps the best way to answer it is uh, to show that the example of the war. I mean, in fact, the presence of the wall is an obvious material embodiment of state ideology. This is clear. There's a wall built on Palestinian ground, uh, and behind it there is a state decision. However, the path that it takes is never uh, has never followed any kind of top-down government decision. The minute that that wall has been projected onto the terrain, has started to be built, it starts meeting resistance of various sorts. Um, international resistance, uh, local activists, uh, 
uh, appeals to the High Court of Justice, etc. So that in fact the wall itself, in its path, is uh, something that um, one of its planners actually called a seismograph, a political seismograph gone mad. The very path of the wall registers the micro-conflict that are actually um, uh, undertaken around it. So I think that in general, if you look as well at the at the occupation itself, it is a combination between a kind of um, master planning, an obvious attempt, uh, Israeli government attempt, to grab the land, to displace Palestinians, to um, um, uh, put its facts on the ground, while on the other hand, the way it is doing it is from kind of uh, a selective uh, a kind of retreat of its authority, right? It kind of it cr- it creates what uh, what in the book is called a kind of organized chaos. Mm-hmm. It allows independent organizations to, in fact, uh, dictate the uh, pace of events and the way it is running. Um, I, you know, uh, I'll wait to get that call there for yourself. I love ringtones. Who doesn't love ringtones? <laughs> yeah, yeah right. that's okay. I understand. I, don't know. I mean, I, I'm not even responsible for the tone. I don't know. It's kind of it's the American version of the British uh, ring tone that they have on my mobile. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Um, the one thing that you know, uh, one of the problems with the occupation is that the, uh, as you point out, the uh, a map of the two different states would nearly be impossible to make how the uh what has been created by the occupation is a perforated uh Palestinian state, if you will, that's punctured by all these settlements throughout it. And that there seems to be this impossibility of being able to make an actual map. Does the wall, at least, I, I mean, I understand the human rights considerations, but taking that all aside, does the wall at least benefit uh, the people on both sides of the border by knowing now that there's at least some, at least permanent, if not, you know, I hate to use this pun, uh, concrete idea of where the borders are? between Palestinians and Israelis? Well, I think that there is a misconception about the wall, and that is that in the kind of uh, Western imagination, let's say, borders are perceived as continuous and contiguous, right? So we imagine the wall to be a continuous line that runs from point A to point B. However invasive it would be in the West Bank, it still makes a neat division. In fact, the wall can never and did never resolve the contradictions of the uh, very overlap of the geography of occupation, the fact that, as you said, this space is perforated, that there is a kind of uh, an Israeli and Palestinian uh, sort of um, uh, overlapping uh, kind of uh, uh, economies and, and infrastructures within the West Bank. And in fact, much of the part of the wall has been kind of like splintered, you know, like you splinter a worm and it kind of has a renewed life. So behind, east of the main part of the wall, there are many uh, so-called depth barriers, what Israel calls them. But in fact, there are walls that curl around extraterritorial Israeli islands that are at the back. The fact is that these are politically invisible. People do not know often that these are... Uh, exist, but in fact there is more fortification, more fencing, walling, and other kind of instruments of separation east of the main section of the wall. So I think that the the wall is more a kind of a displacement uh, mechanism that that projects an illusion that partition is possible. 
I mean, um, as you probably know, in the history of Israel and Palestine, partition plans were really always kind of almost like the immediate reaction to any kind of outburst of violence from the 30s uh, onwards. But none of those lines that were drawn uh, on plans, starting by British planners and then by UN planners, etc., ever managed to, to create a neat separation. The kind of the nature of colonial geography is exactly that kind of overlap that you were mentioning before, and therefore uh, a wall is um, is just one in an instrument in a series of instruments that exist throughout the depth of the terrain rather than creating a neat separation. So today's Israeli government then did they inherit inherent uh, inherit the problems? that were created originally by UN plans or US plans for partition for separation and you know well first of all let's just answer that question is it part is partly uh, is part of the problem not an israeli created problem but a UN created problem a problem inherited by the israeli government uh, yes i i think historically one can uh, one can see that the, the attempt to resolve the israeli palestinian conflict prior to the emergence of the state of Israel, again, was on the basis of partition. And I think that that model has continuously failed. And um, there is no, um, uh, for me, there is no uh, riddle why. I mean, in fact, uh, if you look at the series of plans that were proposed, there was never continuous borders. There could never be a, a, a neat separations of Israelis and Palestinians. If you think about it, historically, the kind of the overlap of claim, right? The, the areas that are most uh, important for uh, Jews in in Palestine are actually the, in the West Bank, around Jerusalem, and in the Palesti- main Palestinian cities like Hebron and like Nablus. Um, Palestinian now, uh, the kind of the places that they um, uh, commemorate, besides the holy places, are as well those those villages that were um, from which they were. Uh, deported in 1947 and 48. So, in fact, you have a kind of a territory in which the both the uh, in uh, both both kind of the form of inhabitation as well as the kind of cultural relation is in complete overlap. Um, and and therefore, I I believe, but this is uh, kind of uh, I I know I'm in very uh, small minority within uh, within Israeli uh, scholars or activists that that are actually promoting an idea of of a democratic state that that is not uh, based on partitions. In fact, the kind of hollow land is an attempt to refute the possibilities of partition. It is showing um, through negation how how to arrive at a, at such situation in which um, you can you can regard the entire territory as a single unit. We've mentioned on uh, numerous shows over the last several years uh, how the public debate on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is far more stifled here in the U.S. than it is in Israel itself. itself. Yet in 2002, you and architect Rafi Siegel won an architectural competition sponsored by the Israel Association of United Architects and were asked to make a presentation on Israeli architecture at the World Congress of Architecture in Berlin. So yeah. what you wanted to do was an exhibit on Israeli architecture as a civilian weapon in the Palestinian conflict. And the Israeli Association of United Architects, uh, they immediately said no. Some say they banned the idea. The association says their budget just simply fell short and they couldn't pay for it. 
Do you believe this was uh, – I mean what does this say about – because here in the United States, the uh, debate over the occupation is really stilted. Anytime that there – anytime that we have a, a critic of the Israeli – or an analyst of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict here on our show, they talk about how you can read far more debate in Haaretz than you're ever going to read in the Washington Post yes, or New York Times. Why is it that this – you know, you have relative freedom of speech on this uh, – public yes. debate within yes. Israel. Why yes. is it that your take on it was yes. at least maybe banned, but maybe at least uh, dismissed by the yes. uh, architectural union? Yes, again, I think it was more to do with a professional shock. I think that if you think about the architectural profession in Israel and see uh, most of its members would consider themselves um, members of the liberal left in Israel. Uh, these are kind of the, uh, like like many of the professional classes in Israel. And uh, in fact, I think they would like to think of architecture as an apolitical, aesthetic uh, occupation um, that is... Um, uh, that, it, that, it's, that its hands are clean in that, re- in that regard, and if it's not clean, at least it operates on a model of the lesser evil, right? It would, it would, if if they would not do it, the situation would be worse. And you see very progressive architects of the left, many of them educated in Europe and the United States, who come and participate in building settlements uh, and other sort of infrastructure in the West Bank. So I think it was more of the the, the profession itself resisting its uh, contamination with politics uh, then uh, because you know you would ask them individually and they would say well of course we are against the occupation but why do you drag architecture into it so i think that um, um, the kind of um, if you want to call it a, a sort of an academic revolution that uh, happened in israel since the late 80s and throughout the 90s that later people called post-Zionism that started to peel the kind of political levels uh, of each of the disciplines, history, education, etc., were kind of exposed to have a, a very strong political agenda. Architecture was somehow the last of them to kind of to fall in the last, and the one to resist most, it's, uh, uh, it's the, the kind of the self-image that was imposed on it uh, in their eyes. You know, uh, I had the uh, fortunate opportunity to interview about eight kids who were here in the United States on a tour to raise money for a health care facility in the Dehesha uh, refugee camp in, in the West Bank. And one of the things that they said actually uh, was kind of uh, echoed this week by President Ahmadinejad when he was being uh, interviewed on numerous media outlets here in the United States. And that is this idea that... Uh, Prior to the birth of the Israeli nation, uh, the uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims were living together peaceably within the Middle East uh, for you know over a thousand years. That they were living together. You talk about how they are interdependent upon each other, and, and the separating of each other, the partition of one another, is nearly impossible. Do you think that we can? Is that idea that these groups work live together peaceably uh, fanciful? Maybe nostalgic myth at this point in time? And can we get back to that state in time if that actually existed? Yeah, well, saying a myth is is actually accepting the situation as it is. And I think that one has to start somewhere. And and I think that a lot of the uh, kind of uh, joint initiatives that perhaps exist, and I don't mean uh, those um, very kind of sponsored by the state or um, by the European Union and American, but but actual collaboration um, that, that are sometimes 
you know, very local and ad hoc are forming forms of connections that uh, that allow us to together get rid of the Israeli system of domination. And in fact, I think it is the same or uh, it, it, an extension of Israeli system of domination in the occupied territories is taking place within Israel itself. Um, you would speak to uh, Bedouins in the Israeli Negev or Palestinians in the um, in the Galilee, and and you you would see that uh, um, the similar measures of kind of national planning and design is applied on them. There is no doubt that this um, that Israel has to democratize uh, and has to accept it, and and part of it is is to understand and and to allow um, discussion and and uh, and speak and open speech about it. And the other one is 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 to is the actual kind of from the ground cooperation that would exist. I I think that uh, simply surrendering to the current. Uh, uh, mood of, of conflict and belligerency is, is ridiculous. One has to fight it uh, and and to, to to do what one can to, to to counter it. I think also another thing that you do and you do you do it very well is you define what the occupation is like and what it's like for Palestinians to live within the occupation. How the occupation isn't just about occupying land, but uh, it's the eighty uh, percent of the aquifer that is the most important uh, fresh water source for the region uh, is under Palestinian land yet 83% of the water is used by Israelis. It's even illegal for Palestinians to drill wells down to the aquifer. Uh, How the space above them, either if it's hilltops or highways that connect one hilltop settlement to another, how the space above Palestinians is, you know, uh, also occupied as well. And you make this really great point about the refugee camps, how in Vietnam they had jungles to hide in, how in... uh, uh, Palestine and the occupied territories right now, they can hide within the completely unplanned and chaotic refugee camps. And you say how when you look at a refugee camp, you can see the sewage and sanitation problems and how those are the th- the, the problems that lead to terrorism and uh, the resistance that there is. You mentioned disinfecting terrorism by improved sewage and sanitation, which is a great use of words. Do you think that if the if the refugee camps were had better accessibility to water, uh, were a better planned, got the necessary funds from UN development groups or whatever the case is, that terrorism could be undermined simply by making the refugee camps hospitable and livable? Well, I think I think that has been the perception uh, on the Israeli side for a long time that one can turn a political issue into a social economic one, and if one can dismantle the refugee camps, you will dismantle the very cause of the Palestinian struggle. Uh, and counterinsurgency, um, as you said, both in Vietnam but as well in in various other corners of a decolonizing planet, uh, has always had as one of its uh, major tools the upgrade. Of um, of the habitat of those who are colonized, and the idea is if you if you make them, there's a process that is called embourgeoisement. If you'd make them uh, have uh, anything to lose, they would actually uh, forsake the national struggle. I mean that has been uh, revealed to be a myth in many uh, in many cases, and as well in in Israel and Palestine. And in fact, it is it paradoxically so. Uh, it was uh, at the early years of occupation, Israel's interest and uh, a lot of funds were actually placed into building new 
neighborhoods for refugees. I mean, these were meant exactly to kind of undo the kind of the cause of the struggle. Uh, however, even from these neighborhoods, resistance was uh, actually offered. So I think that one has to look at the political issue as a political issue and not try to translate it into a social um, economical one. Uh, it is, on, on the other hand, Palestinian organizations were very careful about making, keeping the Palestinian camps in a constant, what they call the constant present, a place that has no, no past and no future, right? A place where that is temporary and that maintains the validity of the attempt um, and the claim for return into places from where the refugees were expelled in 47, 48. So um, th th there, is, th th there is as well a kind of an, a very uh, interesting uh, kind of discourse on both sides on the relationship between national struggle and uh, uh, an urban form or kind of urban regeneration, perhaps. Do you think that um, – I'm trying to figure out this kind of chicken and egg thing about uh, 1967 and when we see a change from urban planning being led by intellectuals and urban planners within Israel to 1967 after the Six-Day War, the next thing that we see is the military and ideologues yeah. taking yeah. over the urban planning for uh, Israel. I'm trying to figure out the chicken and the egg thing here about uh, the militarization of Israeli policy, especially foreign policy in regards yeah. to uh, – the Palestinian occupation. Um, did did the uh, militarization of Israeli policy happen because it was exacerbated by the fact that the military took this over, or it, it was the takeover of urban planning by the military a sign of the growing strength of military uh, militaristic policy within Israel? I think there are many reasons for that, but but in fact, uh, if one look, as you said, about Israel prior to sixty seven. Uh, it was the country that was um, uh, whose lands were were largely taken from Palestinians. They were the state had about 96 percent of of owned 96 percent of its land, and planning was easy. Uh, as well, Israel in these years was a very socialist country, and that was a kind of it had inclination to kind of large scale master planning uh, on the basis of kind of the five years plan, the six, the, you know, the ten years plan of kind of the Soviet bloc. Um, what happened after 67 was as well a kind of a fragmentation of Israeli politics um, from a kind of a very statist approach. And master planning needs a kind of a strong state. Um, there has become a kind of situation where a lot of independent group, non-governmental group, from the right, uh, and, but as well from the left, uh, started operating in a kind of in a situation of a very weakened state. Uh, so in that situation, the military has has already uh, has almost assumed a kind of an independent agency within the within the West Bank. You know that now, the you know the government could say to the military one thing, um, but the military perhaps would just completely disregard it because it has its own interests within the West Bank. It is, I, I think, it's a kind of a much more diffused and multivalent sort of political field. Um, that, that we need to kind of acknowledge in order to understand the way the occupation works than a kind of, you know, the way you started with saying it's a very traditional colonialist system where uh, somehow power is more centralized and concentrated. 
Al, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. Uh, this is a fascinating book. We're going to be giving out uh, 10 copies to listeners who drop by Carrie's Lounge at uh, 2251 <laughs> West Devon today. This is a really an amazing book. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I love seeing a different kind of perspective being brought to an issue that we've discussed on the show so many times, but looking at it through a different lens, looking through uh, at it through the lens of architecture really is amazing. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, and uh, I hope you don't mind if I bug you to have you back on the show in the future. Not at all, not at all. All right, thank you very much, Al. Goodbye. Goodbye. This is hell. Every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., we go till only 10 today. Jeff Dorchin is going to deliver a moment of truth. And uh, I tell you what, Drew, or Drew, Taylor, I was going to say Taylor Drew. Uh, Taylor, uh, as soon as you get Jeffy on the line, just start up his bump and interrupt me all you want so we can get immediately to the moment of truth. By the way, we also got an email this week from Jason. Uh, he asks that we all check out a website called missilebases.com missilebases.com this book uh, hollow land is really amazing just because well maybe maybe it's because of my bias because uh one of the things that i was studying when i was going to school was the history of art and architecture and i think i got a minor in it i may have finished a credit short i i can't remember i i really don't remember there's a lot of my school experience i just don't remember but a really fascinating book uh to discuss and so you can actually think about the occupation one of the things about the occupation that really amazes me is the checkpoints 582 checkpoints 160 floating checkpoints the checkpoints are becoming the areas where it's the only part of an economically successful palestine in other words the occupied territory is the only place where they have open markets successful open markets are to serve the people who are standing in line at the checkpoints. So the checkpoints are becoming the agoras, the, is that the right word? The, uh, the, the you know, the, uh, the open market area, the uh, free fresh air market area where you can buy goods, you can buy foods. You have to be in line to get through at the checkpoints. What does that tell you about the situation with the occupation within Israel and Palestine? Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. On the line with us right now is Gregory Levy. As I was saying before, he's former communications coordinator and speechwriter for Ariel Sharon and Ehud Elmert, an Israeli delegate to the United Nations. Uh, he is a regular Salon.com contributor, and he is the author of the forthcoming memoir, Shut Up, I'm Talking, and Other Diplomacy Lessons I Learned in the Israeli Government. He is on faculty at Ryerson uh, university and blogs at gregorylevy.com. That's L-E-V-E-Y. Uh, his most recent article for Salon.com and posted at his website, gregorylevy.com, is entitled Israel's Rising Right Wing. Good morning, Gregory. Good morning. How are you doing? Uh, good. So you're at uh, Ryerson. That, uh, that's in Toronto, right? It is. It is. And yeah. just out of curiosity, what do you teach up there? I don't really know. I... It's, <laughs> It, communication. I'm not entirely sure what that means. But. You know, uh, we've had a lot of uh, guests on our show, who, and we keep pointing this out, that here in the United States, it's almost impossible to have a debate or discussion about Israeli government policies, that it seems like it's a taboo to discuss Israeli government policies. And if anybody is critical of it, they're seen as somebody who is critical of the even the concept of Israel. I'm just curious, how... Um, uh, what's, what's it like in Canada? Is there more open debate and discussion about Israeli policies, or is it does it still kind of have that kind of taboo feeling that it has here in the United States? 
Uh, that's an interesting question. I hadn't actually thought about it because I'm sort of more involved with the U.S. debate, but um, more engaged in the U.S. debate anyway. But I, I would say it's a little more open in Canada here. Um, a little bit anyway. Uh, and before we even get into your writing, uh, your last uh, post, as I just mentioned, was entitled Israel's Rising Right Wing. However, we have had many Israel analysts on our show, and just to name one, including uh, Uri Avneri, who uh, fought alongside Ariel Sharon in Israel's fight for statehood, who would say that the current Israeli government is already right-wing, let alone there being a rising right-wing. On on the political spectrum, how would you characterize the current Olmert administration? Uh, That's a fair enough criticism. Uh, I would characterize it as sort of center-right. I mean, it certainly leans right. Uh, Olmert and a lot of his Kadima allies, the ruling ruling party, stem from the Likud. I mean, they came from the the right-wing Likud party. But uh, it's certainly right by, you know, my analysis. But when you consider what's further to the right, then you, you know, when you see the real crazies, then you think, okay, maybe these guys aren't as right wing as, uh, as some of their opposition. And uh, so he formed, uh, Omer formed this Kadima party. Well, uh, Sharon formed the Kadima party. I'm sorry, I, my, my apologies. Uh, Sharon formed the Kadima party. They left uh, Likud. What was there, uh, was this for, I, I don't, I'm, trying to figure out the right word to say this. Was this for uh, political reasons or was this for ideological reasons? Did their ideology change from that of Likud or was it more just to attain power because this was more uh, politically viable within the uh, electoral system within Israel? Uh, That's a debatable question. I'd say that uh, Sharon had just done the disengagement um, and, you know, from the Gaza Strip, taking out the, the Israeli military and the settlers. And there was talk, a lot of sort of implicit talk, of, of doing more withdrawals from uh, the West Bank, possibly even Jerusalem, just sort of soft talk. And in his own Likud party, Sharon is the leader of the Likud, at his, in his own Likud party there was a lot of backstabbing and opposition and uh, just sort of making it unworkable for him to proceed. Uh, and so he formed the Kadima. Now, that's sort of on the surface of what happened, whether... It, uh, stems really from real ideology or just the power, it's hard to say. But, I mean, that's uh, at least on overtly what happened. And I just, and I, and I don't want to stray too much from this real, uh, I just want to get back to this real quick. I mentioned Uri Ur, uh, Neri. Uh, he writes a lot at counterpunch.org. Uh, um, and uh, he's somebody who's been on the show on several occasions. Uh, is he writing, because, you know, obviously I'm not in Israel and I've never been to Israel. Is he writing for the American left? How is he viewed within Israel? I, I don't know if I can answer that. He's, he's very good, and I think he's very respected among certain segments. I know he's you know got people who really dislike him as well, but Israel's a big, uh, you know, mudslinging fest all the time, especially in the media. So everyone's got uh, their faction of supporters and their faction of uh, uh, people against him. But um, I, th- I think he's respected within a, a very certain segment. Okay. Uh, I just want, I was just curious because I just wanted to see if he was somebody who was only writing to an American audience. That's what I was trying to figure no, out. No, I don't think so. I, he's well known and respected there. Okay. Um, your, your last article at Salon, Israel's right, Rising Right Wing, concerns uh, a Arkady Gaidamak. 
who you describe as one of this year's nominees for Is- Israeli TV's uh, Man of the Year in Politics, a former, former circus worker, uh, an enigmatic Russian-Israeli billionaire who is now at the center of a right-wing political alliance featuring Israeli uber-hawk Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu that could dramatically influence the country's direction. If the rising alliance takes power in the next election, it could push Israel toward military confrontations with Iran, Syria, or Hezbollah, while extinguishing any remaining flickers of hope in Israel's peace camp regarding the Palestinians. Now, before we uh, you know dive into more details about this Gaidamak Netanyahu alliance, we have had many guests on the show over the past three and a half years. I mean, dating back to February two thousand and uh, two and a half years, uh, uh, dating back to uh, February two thousand and five, when uh, former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter was on the show and said that by April there was going to be an Amer- some sort of American military strike on Iran. Um, how much impact do you believe Israel has on any current Bush administration thinking on a possible strike against Iran? I can't pretend to know, but I do know this. Right, again, this would be in your opinion, right? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> yes. Um, I can't pretend to know, but in the, I got to believe that in the Bush administration calculus, and in any uh, American uh, policy calculus, there's the idea that uh, this Israeli pit bull in the United in in the Middle East, uh, this you know this little outpost um, over there will, if it deems it necessary to its own survival, take matters into its own hands. That is, if the EU, the UN, the US, whoever doesn't deal with uh, a situation Israel sees as uh, prob- problematic, to put it uh, lightly, uh, it may take it into its own uh, hands. And that could have, uh, you know, m- much greater repercussions on everyone, including the U.S., than it being dealt with another way. So then you have the U.S. thinkers, uh, I would imagine, considering that they'd better do something um, to not force the Israeli hand. Those who are opposed to any sort of military engagement here in the United States between the U.S. and Iran say that Iran is not a uh, national security threat to the United States. Is Iran a national security threat to the state of Israel? Uh, It's hard to make categorical judgments, but I would say that it's certainly a potential national security threat to the state of Israel. I mean, you have a country constantly calling for the removal of the Jewish state, uh, supporting, you know, real bad is, you know, uh, jihadi terrorists right near Israel, supporting the Hezbollah, uh, being responsible for bombings against Jewish and Israeli sites abroad, and uh, has this, you know, powerful oil economy behind it, and is developing, uh, well, trying to develop nuclear weaponry. It's clear that there's some Threats. So to say there's no threats is a bit silly. But at the same time, it's not a black and white issue. Uh, Israel has tremendous deterrence power, and people forget that. So all these sort of uh, you know, people just going crazy that, you know, it's, it, it's 1939 and the end is nigh for Israel, this sort of thing. Uh, Iran has to deal with the fact that Israel has this tremendous deterrence power. That's why it's there, uh, the deterrence, that is. So, you know, it, again, I, I, I get suspicious when anyone takes any Middle East issue black or white, categorical. It's certainly a threat, but it's not the threat that the uh, 
fear mongers sort of are yelling about. Last week we had on uh, author Reese Ehrlich who wrote a book called The Iran Agenda that was just released. And in his book he says that Iran that uh, Hezbollah, uh, while Iran does support Hezbollah, uh, Hezbollah would exist even without Iranian support. How integral do you believe Iranian support is to the existence of Hezbollah? Not an expert on that, but I would say, I mean, Hezbollah started without Iran um, and certainly would seem, I'd seem to think it would uh, it would exist without Iran. But we, knew, we do know that weapons and money and support go to Hezbollah via Syria. Right. Uh, so, I mean, its existence, I don't know, but it, it clearly supports it. I mean, every, it's an outpost of Iran, uh, although it's got its own independent agenda as well. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I want to get to uh, Arkady Gaidamak, but before I do that, uh, there's also been uh, the writing of the University of Chicago's uh, John Mearsheimer, his co-writer Stephen Walt, and what they see as APAC, and for our listeners, that's the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, uh, and Israeli government influence over U.S. policy in the Middle East. How would you describe the impact of APAC or directly, uh, directly on the Olmert or current Bush administration policy in the Middle East? I mean, because the way that it's it's viewed here is that APAC is a representative – the way it's viewed in the, the media is – and especially amongst its critics – APAC is a representative of what the Israeli government wants to have happen in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, the Walt Mearsheimer book, one of the – I mean, it's very interesting, but one of the problems uh, I think convincingly um, – Made a, uh, stated about it is that it, it it goes much broader than just APAC because the Israel lobby, as they call it, it's in their words, a loose coalition of and it's you know all kinds of figures. I think it's much more interesting to what the way you frame the question is to talk about APAC itself, which is an organized, tight knit uh, lobby group. Um, I think an interesting point is that while I think you're right that in the U.S. it's viewed as sort of the uh, Israeli voice and Israeli sort of finger of control on American politics. In Israel, it's not really viewed that way. In fact, I, when working in the government, um, I was very surprised to find a lot of people in the Israeli government quite often irritated with AIPAC, uh, <laughs> which is totally counterintuitive from an American point of view. Um, it's irritated with AIPAC interfering. Uh, a lot of times the actual policies of APEC are much further to the right than of the Israeli government, much more uh, well, pro-Israel, they'd call it, but in Israel it's often seen as not exactly uh, completely helpful all the time. There was an article, I can't even remember who wrote it, but thought that, I think it was Daniel Levy, um, who the, the subject, uh, sorry, the title was great, it was Supporting Israel to Death, and I think um, that's an interesting take is that even from within the Israeli government, it's often considered APEC maybe a little bit too supportive in a way. Yeah, we had uh, Daniel on the show too, and he oh, was he it was an amazing guest to have on the He's show. Great. So, it, 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 would it be accurate? I mean, it, it, so, I just I might just be reiterating what you said. So, would it be accurate to say that there are those in Israel who believe that uh, APEC is? Uh, interfering with the internal policies of Israel? Um, I don't know about with internal policies of Israel, but with Israeli relationship to the U.S. and right. with, with, with U.S. policy towards Israel, uh, there's certainly those. I mean, there's, there's a lot of appreciation. APEC, uh, 
when it sticks to some of its main issues, it is it, obviously quite helpful to Israel. There's no denying that. But um, I think in, in sort of steering policy, just the fact that it's further to the right, I think, and most people believe, then the current Israeli leadership and then most leaderships that have ever run Israel, it's not entirely helpful. Right. And, uh, you know, and th- again, this is just an aside from what we are, I want to get to our discussion about. But because uh, it, it really does seem like I was saying before that uh, it, here in the United States and the media, whatever AIPAC believes is kind of the way in which uh, the Israeli mood or the Israeli beliefs are uh, framed in our media. And I think and I think that I would like to hear your response to this, but I think that that kind of undermines uh, a lot of what Americans uh, how they might feel about how they might feel about Israel. They may have negative opinions about Israeli policy based on AIPAC's beliefs and not based on the policies of whoever is running the Israeli government. I'd absolutely agree, and I'd go further. I'd say that uh, it also fosters some, often some. Uh, uh, disrespect or even irritation or anger with American Jews who often apex seen as sort of their voice when it's not. Uh, the opinions, ideas, views of American Jewry is much further uh, to the left than what APEC seems to represent. Um, I, I want to point out, I mean, APEC, I, I'm not wholly anti apec I just think it's got a kind of a very strong voice and there's not a lot of a balance on the other side. Uh, and that's in, you know harmful, right? And I think that's a good thing to point out too is that uh, when people do view APAC, they view them as uh, very right wing. But as you were saying, it depends on what policy initiatives that they are discussing. Uh, that at times uh, the things that, as you were saying, the things that they are doing are what's appropriate for Israel. But it, as you were saying, they do have a stance that's farther to the right than uh, most American Jewry and the Israeli government. Yeah. Off. Yeah. Um, uh, you write uh, how uh, this Arcady Gaidamak, am I pronouncing his name right? I don't know. I think so. <laughs> okay. Let's say I am, because that way I sound smarter. Right. Uh, has, quote, has used his wealth to gain popularity through social and business initiatives. Does money, because I don't think Americans, I know that I don't, have uh, that much of an understanding of Israeli internal politics or uh-huh. how the electoral process works. Does money have the same kind of stranglehold on Israeli electoral politics as it does here in the United States, where you have to raise millions of dollars in order for you to win an office, where you you have a place like here in the United States, where we are in desperate need of real campaign finance reform? I don't think it does to the same extent. You don't need the same level of money. I mean, just because the media market is much smaller, the population is much smaller, you don't need those millions. I mean, but it certainly plays a big role. He's used his money not necessarily in those electoral uh, you know, uh, mechanisms, but in sort of buying the support of the public and just being, buying popularity. Uh, whether it is in the occupied territories or in Israel itself, there have been charges of corruption. I shouldn't say charges. Allegations of corruption, at times charges, on both sides. In fact, the Palestinian Authority's corruption is pointed to as one of the reasons, if not the main reason, Hamas won elections. Uh, the Palestinians voted for Hamas as a kind of protest vote against Fatah. Can the rising right-wing alliance of Gaidamak, Netanyahu, win solely based on a protest vote in Israel? I don't think solely on it, but it's certainly a big uh, help, uh, you know, especially since the war in uh, with Lebanon last year. Uh, there's this 
fear, and not this fear, this, this conception that the country's full of cronyism, nepotism, incompetence, uh, negligence, and it seems to be true. Um, and these guys, particularly Guy Damick, sort of stand out from all that and, and uh, oppose it. And, I mean, it's not going to be solely based on that, but it's an, it, it certainly adds a lot. But this Kadima party was uh, there are people who are from the former Likud. Uh, Benjamin uh, Netanyahu, Netanyahu is in Likud, so wouldn't that imply then that the corruption and cronyism that is in, that may or may not be in Kadima is also within Likud? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, it's corruption is so widespread in Israeli government; it's mind blowing from and, right to left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from right to left, and nepotism and cronyism and, and this sort of thing. But uh, there was a there, they take weird polls there, like, like polls on strange issues uh, we wouldn't take here. There was a poll recently, I think this past week or two weeks ago, about which who the most corrupt politician was, <laughs> and people were sort of voting on who they thought was most corrupt, um, which was odd. And I think uh, the prime minister got first or second place on, on with that uh, dubious distinction. <laughs> I don't think you get an award for that. Yeah. I wish we had that kind of poll here in the United States. Yeah, <laughs> I, w- I wonder if the poll itself was fixed or something. But... Yeah. What is the most corrupt poll that you have ever taken? Right. That's the next one we got. Uh, you write that Gaidamak is, <laughs> I love this description, is uh, like a cross between George Soros and Karl Rove with a streak of Russian oligarchy at his core. Uh, that hits all the bases. Left hate him because of the Rove tag, right hate him because of the Soros tag, and both can certainly hate him because of the Russian oligarch label. Uh, what do you mean by the combination of these traits, that he's a rich and cleverly manipulative gangster? Well, I hesitate to say he's a gangster, but uh, he's certainly rich and cleverly manipulative. Uh, he's used his money to influence politics and continues to, and it's really increasing uh, in, in a sort of Soros-like fashion. Um, very different ideologies to Soros, but just in terms of using billions to influence uh, political discourse in clever ways, too, uh, not just strictly uh, funding parties, but funding movements and, you know, helping people in a way that just buys popularity. At the same time, he's got, he's, he's pretty clever uh, politically, and he's founded his, uh, a new party, which may or may not have some successes in the next election, and he's setting the groundwork for a run for Jerusalem, and he's sort of quietly opened up uh, offices or, or branches around the country, and, and he's got a very tightly uh, manipulated, tightly run uh, political organization, much like in a Karl Rove fashion. He's got some uh, advisors who, you know, they don't talk to the press much, but they're just sort of Machiavellian. And then the Russian oligarch uh, aspect to it is certainly there as well. He, he's, he brings something that's pretty foreign to Israel, or at least was, for uh, pretty foreign to Israel, into the political uh, arena, which is uh, not an aversion to democracy, but sort of a not a discomfort with it, perhaps. Um, uh, but, you know, the way that uh, I, I think that that if you ask Democrats here in the United States, uh, let's say even let's say a year ago, uh, who they dislike more, George Bush or Karl Rove, I think that most of them would have said Karl Rove. And I think that the only person that Republicans would dislike more than uh, George Soros would at least give him a run for his money would be uh, Hillary Clinton, just by based by viewing a Fox News channel, you know, which isn't a very good source, a good source to find out who the right hates, though. Yeah. So does Guy not only bring 
uh, necessarily this, you know, uh, the, his resources and his clever manipulation uh, to Netanyahu and the Likud party. But does he also bring any kind of those negative factors that he's seen as a, a puppet master that the, maybe the left or the, uh, anybody who's opposing oh, yeah. Likud really hates him maybe more than they hate Netanyahu? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, he, he's got his own little party, which likely will run with Likud, not sort of directly in Likud. But uh, absolutely, uh, people are very uncomfortable with a lot, of his, a lot of his views, a lot of his actions, a lot of his sketchy, sketchy dealings. Just recently, in fact, since I wrote that article, he, there are allegations that he was involved with some uh, sort of crooked uranium mining operation in Kazakhstan. Uh, you know, he's apparently or allegedly wanted in France for arms dealing. Uh, he's got four different passports for some reason. One of them is an Angolan diplomatic passport that he travels on. Uh, he owns this this a very popular soccer team in Jerusalem called Beitar uh, Jerusalem, which just this week where they had a memorial for uh, assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and the fans booed uh, in, in, during the moment of silence, booed Rabin, and even sang songs uh, glorifying Rabin's killer. This is by Gaidamek's team, and they've been punished. Now the team's going to play a few games where they, no fans are allowed to attend. <laughs> yeah, you, you're right how uh, fans even uh, yell death to Arabs. Yeah, they the... do. They do. I mean, this is not his fault. He's the owner right. of the team. He's, he's not responsible for all the fans' behavior. And they were there like sort of soccer hooligans before he arrived. But all these, con- all these connections to him, certainly the left really dislike. So, I mean... It, it... I know that you wouldn't want, like you were saying before, you don't want to put a simple categorization or, ca- or simple labels on people. Uh, so is this indicative of maybe not Gaidamak being racist, but willing to uh, exploit racism for his own political ends? Yeah, it seems possible. Um, he's definitely willing to exploit uh, any sort of aggrieved minorities or aggrieved interest groups and uh, any kind of resentment. He's, he's very good at and very willing to, to foster in order to gain support. Um, when, oops, I hit the wrong button. Uh, when uh, The next elections now, we don't know when that's going to be. The, the, the next elections have not been called yet, correct? That, that's right. And now when there are the next elections, just for people who don't know, there is, there is not a direct uh, vote for the president. This is just like any kind of parliament where uh, the uh, winning party selects who, you know, once they form a coalition, they select who the prime minister is going to be, Correct. That's right. Okay, I just want to make sure, because in case our audience is trying to... Yeah, it's very confusing, endlessly confusing. Right. Uh, uh, You call the Olmert administration centrist, but as I was saying before, they would say, you know, some of the policies would be right-leaning. Many would say that the fighting with Hezbollah and the bombing of Lebanon last year was not the actions of a centrist, but somebody who... Yeah, I'd agree with that, of course. Somebody who would be on... So how... Uh, how were those actions, or not how were those actions centrist, but why was he forced into a situation where he was uh, undertaking a policy that would be seen as something that would be more right-leaning? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I call him center-right. I wouldn't call him centrist. But uh, he came into the government, he came into the prime minister's office w- without any security credentials. Uh, you know, he... Un- Unlike almost any other prime minister ever, or perhaps even any prime minister ever, he doesn't come with a military background. Uh, he's a lawyer, a career politician. His defense minister was the first defense, his 
the first defense minister who was also had no security background, to civilian leadership. It, the defense minister's now been changed, but to, it was a civilian leadership, and they sort of had a lot to prove. Whereas Ariel Sharon could sort of sit back and, and not respond to provocations because he had you know, his decades of more than brutal uh, background. Everyone knew that he was what we, he was willing and capable of. Omar couldn't do that. Omar couldn't afford to be seen as weak because people already had that conception of him from a security point of view. I think that sort of forced his hand in a way uh, in terms of rushing into war. After rushing into war, there was even further problems of incompetence and negligence and disorganization. But I think in a way he was trying to prove himself. You uh, quote a senior Israeli official uh, who said, quote, there is a sense among some people that democracy just didn't work for us and we should be like the rest of the Middle East, that we tried democracy and failed. And this is kind of a warning that he's saying. But Guy Demak is something else. He's an oligarch. Don't forget that a lot of his supporters are Russians. They're not really familiar with democracy. My question was going to be uh, how much danger is democracy in in Israel? But it is, I mean, and I definitely would like to hear your response to that, but is this similar to, say, the way that uh, critics of the Bush administration would say democracy is under threat here in the United States because of the way in which his attorneys general have uh, have interpreted the Constitution and the laws of the United States? I would say, yeah, I would say there's, there's some analogy to be made there, certainly. And, and it's to the same extent, or is Netanyahu more of a threat to Israeli law than the Bush administration is a threat to America? Yeah, uh, well, it, it's hard to say, but I, I think... I think it, Netanyahu uh, and his ilk uh, are probably more of a threat. I mean, he's made statements, and he's got a sort of quasi-ally who's now in a coalition with Omer named uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who's made statements about transferring Israeli Arabs. These aren't Palestinians. These are citizens of Israel who are Arab, transferring them out of Israel. I mean, you can't get more anti-democratic than that. And Netanyahu's never made such you know, hardcore statements, but he's also called them a demographic threat. These kinds of, and this is against the citizens of the country. These are not Palestinians. So I don't, I think the, that sort of threat to democracy goes well beyond, uh, you know, attorneys general manipulations and such. And you mentioned how uh, Guy Demak has these connections to uh, Putin, to the Kremlin. In 2005, you write, uh, for reasons uh, that remain murky, Guy Demak purchased uh, Russia's Moscow News, fired some senior journalists, and changed the paper's mandate to a firmly pro-government once, uh, appointing a pro-Putin journalist as editor-in-chief. This was widely viewed as hostile to free speech and raised questions about Guy Demak's uh, possible ties to the Kremlin. You also write about his ties to uh, the same kind of corporations that supported uh, the Bush administration and their rise to power in uh, 2000, as well as connections to Halliburton. Uh, so it seems like he has not only connections to Putin, but he has connections to Bush, that he has connections to the Kremlin and to Washington, D.C. Uh, why are uh, Israelis so concerned about connections to the Kremlin? What do they think that that might mean for a future prime minister uh, that would be supported by Gaidamak? Well, we, we can't go too overboard in, in figuring out what uh, connections means. And when I say that, that, that the reasons remain murky, that may well just be they remain murky to me because I can't read Russian. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least you're honest. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's a bit unclear, and I don't know, and I haven't done a full investigation of any connections to the Kremlin. But 
or or for that matter to Halliburton and whatnot, but it's a former partner of his who had some dealings with Halliburton and Bush uh, Bush Connected Corporation, so on. So that you know the connections are there. A former close partner. The connections are there, but they're all you know they're not uh, particularly concrete that we can put our fingers on. But the idea of having connections to uh, to Putin or to the Kremlin or just again it's that Russian oligarch thing. I think it's a bit distressing to Israelis who value. Uh, uh, sort of a Western sense of democracy and civil rights, particularly looking at what is happening in Russia right now. How much more likely do you believe uh, Israel would? Uh, how much I should say? How much? Uh, yeah. How much more likely is it that Israel would do a military strike on Iran under a Netanyahu administration as opposed to the Olmert administration that is in power right now? Well, it depends on the context. It depends on what the United States is doing, what the EU is doing, what's happening in the region, uh, when this is occurring. Uh, I think that as time goes on, if the Iran problem, for lack of a better term, isn't solved in one way or another, whatever governments in Israel will take action. Uh, having said that, Netanyahu has proven himself reckless in the past. He's done all kinds of crazy debacles. <laughs> Um, and he's made much more militant statements against Iran than the Prime Minister Olmert would be willing to make. Um, Gregory, I got one last question for you. Sure. We've been speaking with Gregory Levy. He's former communications coordinator and speechwriter for Ariel Sharon and Ehud Elmert, uh, an Israeli delegate to the United Nations. He is now uh, doing a, a lot of writing at his blog, GregoryLevy.com. That's L-E-V-E-Y.com, a regular salon contributor. He's going to have a forthcoming memoir called, by the way, a great title on your book, Shut Up, I'm Talking, and Other Diplomacy Lessons I Learned in the Israeli Government. Again, that's uh, Gregory Levy. L-E-V-E-Y.com. Gregory, our last question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or maybe we know that the answer is going to be so hellish that uh, we're kind of afraid to ask, that we're you know, kind of afraid of what the outcome of the question is. But you write, and you mentioned this before, uh, Evigdor Lieberman, somebody we've discussed on our show in the past, uh, you write how if elected, uh, Netanyahu would, quote, also draw support from right-wing secular leaders, such as the ultra-hawkish Evigdor Lieberman, a former chief of staff for Netanyahu, who heads the openly racist party Israel Betenu. Uh, Lieberman has called for the transfer of some of Israel's Arab citizens out of the country, has suggested bombing Palestinian civilian infrastructure in the occupied ter- territories, and, have even, and has even argued openly for bombing Tehran. Now, it seems like the United States government, no matter what party is in power, Republican or Democrat, seems to, especially of late, maybe the last 25 years, uh, support and any position the Israeli government, whoever is in power, takes. Do you think that these kinds of positions, the kind of positions of Avigdor Lieberman, uh, just to use as an extreme, let's say Netanyahu embraced all of these kinds of positions, do you think that these kinds of positions would still be supported by, say, a you know current Bush administration, a Giuliani administration, a Hillary Clinton administration? Do you think that even these kinds of actions would lead to a, 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 the continued support of uh, the United States for Israeli policy? I would certainly hope not. Uh, 
But it, 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 although the U.S. is you know constantly support Israel, always support Israel, this kind of discourse, this kind of dialogue uh, that Lieberman and others are bringing forward is a whole new kind of crazy that the U.S. and Israel hasn't dealt with before. Now that's a better name. That's a good name for your next book, a new a kind, new of, kind cra- of crazy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gregory, I really appreciate you being on the show this morning. Anytime, and and anytime. fantastic writing, by the way. Thank you uh, very much. Check out, uh, check out his website, GregoryLevy.com. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>